Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Loganberry Books, an independently owned and operated bookstore in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio. Loganberry features a carefully curated collection of new, used, and rare books for both readers and collectors. Learn more and shop online at loganberrybooks.com. And we're brought to you by Max Bax, a proud Cleveland indie bookstore with three floors for browsing, great online service, and chocolate milkshakes right next door. Find your next great read and shop online at maxbacks.com. You guys, I have the best job. Every once in a while, I'll try to bellyache. I have so much reading to do. I haven't had time to write questions. And then I just have to pinch myself. I get to read books and talk to creative people. That's bananas. This is the best job ever, especially today, because the brilliant and marvelous and altogether magical Celeste Ng is here. Celeste is basically a literary rock star, both here in my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio, and all around the world. She's the author of three novels. Her first publication, Everything I Never Told You, was a New York Times bestseller and named the best book of the year by over a dozen publications. Everything I Never Told You has been translated into over 30 languages and is being adapted for the screen. Celeste Ng's second novel, Little Fires Everywhere, was named a best book of the year by over two dozen publications and spent more than 52 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It's also been published in more than 30 languages and has been adapted as a Hulu series starring Kerry Washington and Reese Witherspoon. Celeste Ng's third novel, Our Missing Hearts, is new this fall. It's been named a most anticipated book of the year by more publications than I can count. Booklist described Our Missing Hearts in this way. Quote, As lyrical as it is chilling, as astonishing as it is empathic. Literary perfection. I was fortunate enough to read an early copy and I can't wait to talk about it. Celeste Ng grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and Shaker Heights, Ohio. She graduated from Harvard and earned an MFA from the University of Michigan. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, and many other publications. She's a recipient of the Pushcart Prize, a Guggenheim, and a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. Celeste Ng, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you here with us today to talk about your newest novel, Our Missing Hearts, which is a story about power and art and about the legacies we pass on to our children. I mean, so many of us spent our childhoods in libraries, easing forbidden titles from the stacks and reading to make sense of ourselves. Mm -hmm. However, in Our Missing Hearts, you introduce us to a world where this kind of literary curiosity is no longer possible. You recently interviewed Tony uh, Mara about his new book, and I loved your opening question. So I wonder if we could just start with that. Will you tell us about the seeds of Our Missing Hearts and which parts came to you first and what inspired you to write this book? Sure. I started writing this book right after I finished my second novel, Little Fires Everywhere. And 
At the time, I thought it was just going to be a fairly conventional mother-son story. That was really the the beginning of the whole thing. It was about a relationship between a mother who was an artist. Um, I knew she was going to be something creative, whether a writer or visual artist, and her son, who didn't really understand why she was so drawn to this work and maybe even resented it or saw it a little bit as a rival for his attention. And so I started off writing it, and it was it was a fairly conventional story, as I said. And then that was about September, October 2016. So fairly soon thereafter, a lot of really dark things started to happen in our country. You know, there was the election, there was the rise of the far right. You know, a lot of things that had been simmering under the surface really came right up to the top. And the novel itself started to take a much darker turn, I think, because it felt like we were living in a dystopia. And we can talk later on about whether this book really is a dystopia. But at the time, it really felt like we were living in sort of a horror novel. And the novel felt like it had to take on some of those topics in order to feel honest. It it was weird to write a book where, you know, Trump had never become president and just pretend like, oh, that didn't happen in this world. It needed to be a world that I think acknowledged some of the darkness that was happening off the page. So the book really grew from there, but I tried to keep it a mother-son story at its heart because for me, that was where it all started. Yeah. And the son in this book is named Bird. And we start, I'm not giving anything away here, but we open the the novel. Bird has just received a letter from his mother who left home mysteriously a certain number of years earlier. And we quickly get a sense of this world, right? He's living in the era of something called PACT, the Preserving American Culture and Traditions Act. And under the excuse of so-called national security, books by Asian Americans are banned. The government reads citizens mail, um, hate crimes against Asian Americans go unpunished, and the government removes children from their homes if parents are deemed unfit, which often just means parents simply questioned those barbaric rules. Our Missing Hearts is a work of fiction, but as a reader, so much of your made-up world felt so believable. As a writer myself, I like to escape into my fictional worlds I'm creating, but I wonder... Did you have any escape here? Were you ever shocked or disillusioned by the world you were creating? I was. It was It was really a difficult book to write. And honestly, part of the reason that it took so long, I told you I started writing it in the fall of 2016, was partly that I, I didn't want to write it. I didn't want to have to dwell in these worlds. And I didn't want to think about these issues. You know, enough was happening in the real world. I wanted to, you know, escape, as you said, as a writer, part of the fun of writing is that you get to not deal at least directly with what's going on. But that ended up becoming part of the book, that that desire that I think we have totally reasonably to look away or to escape or to step out of these things that are happening. And that ended up being one of the questions that the characters in the book have to face. You know, can you ignore these things going on? if you really, really, really want to. I mean, it's easier. There's lots of reasons too, but then there's also reasons maybe that we have to look closely at it. And that was what I ended up having to do in the novel. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned in your author's note, um, quote, the world of this novel isn't exactly our world, but it isn't not ours either. And I knew that you were drawing inspiration from many real life events, both past and in fact, current Because there's a long history in the United States and elsewhere 
of removing children. You, you mentioned this, removing children as a means of political control. This Absolutely. is something we have done and continue to do. And we may want to look away from that because it might be easier. But as you said, it's it's terrifying, right, that this is happening. The forced separation of children from their parents is happening inside of your book and inside of our world. Was it important to you to shed light on this as you wrote? It really was. I took as my guiding principle something Margaret Atwood famously said about writing The Handmaid's Tale that she said if she was making an imaginary garden, she wanted the toads in the garden to be real. In other words, she said, you know, nothing that she put in that book was completely made up. And that felt really important to me too, to try and take that same kind of baseline and say that nothing in the book was going to be completely without precedent. So everything that takes place has some some tie to the real world, either something that's happened in the past or, as you said many times, something that is happening right now. And once that was the case, it felt really important to point out to the reader, hey, I didn't make this up. And this isn't something that happened long, long time ago. This is something that still happens here. It still happens in other countries. It is probably still going to happen again unless we really finally take a look at the past and try to acknowledge and learn from what we've done. Yeah. I mean, Bird's dad works at this university library where it's it's this is not a time when research is, is welcomed into the, the kinds of curiosity and questions that we might ask as researchers uh, is often frowned on in their in their world. But he has um, a provost who I think he wrote something like, if we fear something, it is all the more imperative we study it thoroughly. And I thought about that and the way... It's such a fascinating mirror into what our country is struggling with right now. I mean, are those individuals who are opposed to teaching critical race theory, Mm -hmm. are they truly reading and immersing themselves in a study of the subject? Are they reading Ibram X. Kendi's work before they go into these board meetings demanding that we not teach these things? Again and again, I was just thinking about our current political climate, and we're not figuring these things out, and our children are watching and they are inheriting these messes that we're making, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that our children are inheriting sometimes is the fear without the context or the understanding. It strikes me. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, you know, the debate over critical race theory because that seems to me to be a case where people are really afraid of what they'll find out. And so in a way, they've decided they're not even going to look. They're like, don't even open that box and don't even bring it over here. It might be important for us to know, but we're just going to pretend that whole thing doesn't exist. And anybody who even tries to acknowledge that there might be something to learn, we're going to shut down. And I think about what message that sends to the next generation, which is sort of there are some things that are so terrifying that we can't learn from them, right? And it's better to be ignorant than it is to admit that you made a mistake and try and learn from it. And that's a terrifying thing to think about being passed on to the next generation. Um, I mean, my own point of view is that everybody can learn from the past. And that's, in theory, what will allow us to do better in the future. But if we don't look at the past, we're probably not going to learn anything. And we're probably just going to make the same mistakes over again. And so, again, I'm thinking about the changes that are starting to happen in school districts or libraries. You know, a lot of the things that I wrote about in the novel that were happening occasionally are happening more in a more widespread way now. And I'm thinking about how is this going to affect the education of the next generation? They're not even going to know about a lot of these things if we don't teach it to them. Yeah. 
There's a point uh, that she read about, and it's this quote, Bird wonders who decided which books were too dangerous to keep and who it was that had to hunt down and collect the condemned books, like an executioner ferrying them to their doom. Because that's just it, isn't it? I mean, once we start banning books, who's in charge of that? Who makes the decisions about what survives and what's condemned and and why? I don't know about you, but if a book is banned, I know that's a book I want to read. <laughs> I think that's that's how I feel too. And I think that's how a lot of people feel. And I, I take some hope in that in a way. The idea that if you are being told that something is too dangerous for you, in a way, there is a sense that you almost need to find out what that is. I mean, I guess it's akin to if you're in a cafe and the people next to you start whispering, the first thing you do is you lean in because you're like, there's something here that I want to know. There's something here that's being kept from me. And sometimes it turns out to be something really boring. But a lot of times it's something that's fascinating. And I think that's true, too, of knowledge. We were talking at the beginning about going to libraries and sort of pulling, you know, forbidden books off the shelf doesn't even need to be anything salacious. It's just something that you didn't know was there and that you're interested in. And that's one of the things that I've, I've loved about libraries. I also was one of those kids who spent my childhood in a library. The idea that there is all this information and it was available to you and you could just walk up to it and take it down and see if it was interesting to you. That was really powerful to feel. And it's something that I think, you know, I think everybody should get to experience that idea that knowledge is there for you if you want it. And that you're not alone. Yeah. One of my favorite things about books was that you you learned that other people felt the way you did or other people lived the way you did. And then the, the converse was like, oh, my gosh, they went through something so different. And that's amazing, too. And and that, yeah, I, I spent most of my childhood and probably would still duck into a book to just live there instead of out here. Yes, absolutely. It's what you said. I mean, there's sort of, um, it's the, the theory of mirrors and windows, right? That books can reflect part of you back to you and make you feel seen and recognized and less alone, which I think is so, so valuable. And they can also be a window into something totally new. And the fact that they can do both of those things is really amazing. And if you think about what's happening with a lot of the book bands, in a way, you don't want them to be mirrors and you also don't want them to be windows, right? It's sort of like you just want a wall. And that's essentially sort of what's happening. And if there's any positive aspect to what's happening now, I hope it's that a lot of people are starting to think really carefully about what it means to say you can't read this book or no child can read this book, right? We're going to take this book away. No, absolutely. Lest I give readers the wrong idea, because I think we, like you said, we could talk about whether this is a dystopian novel or not. But I want to make sure that folks also understand that it's not, this is not a book of of all bad news. Yes, this is a world in our missing hearts where the truth is indeed under attack. But because of that, it's also a world in which librarians and poets and knitters and sculptors are occasional superheroes. I love that. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I, as much as this was a hard book to write, I ended up writing into that sort of fear and that darkness by asking myself, okay, how are we supposed to hold on to hope? How are you supposed to have any belief that there can be a better future? I mean, the alternative, I guess, is just to give up in despair. But if you're thinking about the future, if you are raising a child or you know children, it's, you know, that was very much on my mind. I have, I have a kid. And the answer that I came to, in as much as it's an answer, as you said, is this sense that there are people out there who are trying to do the opposite of what the book banners are doing, right? They're trying to 
express themselves. They're trying to make it easier for other people to express themselves. They're trying to find connections, right? And they're trying to make a community. And whether that's through their art or through their writing or through, you know, some kind of activism or through, as you said, the librarians end up being some of the heroes of the book in connecting people with the information they need and then connecting people with the people that they're trying to find. That's one of the things that that I came away thinking about is sort of the ways that you can find other people who, like you said, are with you, are feeling the same things, and that you're not alone, even in the moments when it feels like you are. Yeah. Like bajillions of readers the world over, I, of course, loved your previous two books, Everything I Never Told You and Little Fires Everywhere. They're both big books about families and uh, secrets and how we do or do not welcome the stranger. And I felt those same themes present here. But I also felt you doing something different. I mean, it's good that you told me the background of your book, but I definitely, as a reader, felt you, Celeste Ng, the writer, echoing the call to action that the knitters and the librarians were summoning in the in the pages of this book. There was something meta about you stepping forward as an artist and a kind of change agent when there were artists and change agents in your book stepping forward. Is that a fair observation? Did you feel yourself moved a little differently when you were writing this? I did. I, I'm glad you said both of those things because I also see a similarity with my first two books. I think a lot of the themes are the same, which is what do we pass on to our children? Um, can you ever actually explain your own experience to somebody else? And can they really understand what it's like to be you? And then the questions about what is the role of art in the world? Can it make a change? Can it reveal something to you? Can it connect you? Is it just a waste of time? Right. All those sort of big questions. But while I was writing this, because it was happening during the Trump years and then particularly during the pandemic, um, I really picked up writing the book. And I would say about April or May of 2020, which was a, a pretty isolated time for most of us. Um, it, it felt like the book that was calling to me. I, I had actually set it aside and I was working on another book because this book was just so difficult. I didn't know how to write it. I didn't know what I was doing. And I, I didn't want to spend time in that world. And I came back to it because it felt so resonant with the things that I was asking myself. And I, I pulled out, uh, I I'd opened up an email I started writing to my agent and I said, hey, you know how I was working on this other book? Uh, I think I have to go and work on this other one that's, you know, sort of dystopian. She'd, you know, she'd seen pieces. And she wrote back and said, I actually was just emailing you the same thing that I keep thinking about that other book. And I was so relieved because it felt like being given permission to kind of dive in. But during the pandemic in particular, I was asking myself a lot of questions about like, what am I doing? I get to sit in my office and I make up stories. I play with words. I talk about people who didn't exist. I should I should go and like I should go get a medical degree and try and actually help people, right? I should become like a labor organizer or, you know, an epidemiologist or anything that felt more tangible. And a, a friend of mine has this saying, they always say, give the problem of your book to your book. And I kind of like that idea because in a sense, the issues that you're struggling with are going to make their way into the book. And so I tried to do that. I tried to put that question of what is the purpose of art? Can one person make a difference? Can art make any difference? I tried to put that into the novel. And so in a way, Margaret, who is Bird's mother, is trying to figure out what art can do. She's a poet and she's thinking, does this, does this mean anything? You know, does telling a story mean anything? Or is it just sort of, you know, a waste in the face of more practical things? And I think the answer that she comes up with is that it does do something. And that's that's at least what I would like to believe, too. You know, I hope that 
telling a story in some way or allowing someone else's story to be told has an effect, even if it's not as immediate and clear as, you know, saving someone's life in an operating room. No, 100%. I feel like we all did this reevaluation, whether it was in 2016 or during the pandemic. What is it that we're doing with our lives and, and yeah. does it have meaning and does it have value? I worked on a political campaign for a time thinking that I should stop being a storyteller and work on this campaign to, to change votes. And my job on that campaign ended up being the storyteller because yeah. it turns out what changed people votes and changes their minds is actually stories. Exactly. You, th you think it's policy. You think what you do is you go with a pen and you look, you compare education policies. It's not, it's stories and stories do matter. Uh, there's that article, I think it's by Rebecca Mackay about, uh, she says something like art is a radical act. Yes, and and coming back to that again and again, that this book seems like a radical act because I do think it is a radical act. And then the characters in this book are acting radically and, and what they're doing is love of art, is love of language, is love of truth, is love of their children. And that shouldn't be radical, but it is. It is. And and I think what that boils down to in its largest sense is, is love of humanity, right? Not just in the, you know, individual human being sense, but in the kind of messiness and complication of what it is to be human. You know, when you start thinking in abstractions, like you said, in policy, right, you can say, well, 42% of Americans agree that, right, that may change some people's minds. But a lot of times it's more accessible when someone is telling a story about themselves or the person you're talking to connects their own experience to this previously abstract idea. I, I loved what you said about that idea of art as being sort of radical because I think art is one of the things that sometimes can cut through those abstractions. And I always think of it as, as kind of coming in at you sideways. It kind of bypasses all the rationality. It bypasses all the logic, all the parts of you that are like, well, how much money am I going to save by doing this? It kind of sneaks in and it gets you emotionally. And then ideally you have to sit with that emotion for a minute and you have to think, oh, but if I'm feeling, I'm feeling something. What am I feeling? You have to figure out what you're feeling and then you have to figure out what, what, is, what does that mean? That means that actually I don't want this or I do want this or this maybe is not right. You know, there's, it's a very slow process and it's a very indirect way of reaching people. But I feel like sometimes we have our defenses up against the sort of rational statistics, logical, common sense kind of things. And the emotion is sort of more immediately accessible in a way. You, It gets at you and then it, it can create sort of a more lasting change sometimes. Sure. Art tells the truth, but tells it slant. Yeah. And there's a Dickinsonian, Emily Dickinson. Yeah. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.
Um, I, I think this is also a book about the love of language, and I don't want to gloss over it too much, but plenty of high school kids, I learned Latin roots, you know, but I never thought about the word behind the word. Bird's father tells him that the word library comes from the root liber, which means book. I feel like most of us, that's as far as we went with words. But then Bird's father goes on to quote, it, it comes from the Latin word meaning the inner bark of trees, which comes from the word for to strip, to peel. Early peoples pulled off thin strips for writing material. There are all kinds of gems, whether it's um, Bird's mother's last name or the word conspiracy, all kinds of just delicious word art and, and love of language in here. I think only a true lover of words could have written this. I wondered who taught you to love words. I mean, I've always been a word lover, and I'm glad you called this up because I I am a word nerd and I love it. Um, I had I did have a Latin teacher who I think was really formative in this. I loved language before, but I think she made me much more aware of the stories that are kind of packed into the DNA of words. I think before that, I liked words that sounded pretty or that sounded cool. Often, the longer the better. You know, the ones that were towards the end of the thesaurus entry. And then I had this amazing teacher, Miss Cusick, in seventh and eighth grade, we had to take a language and one of the choices was Latin and I heard she was great. And she every day would talk to us about an English word and then she would talk to us about the Latin roots of it. And that was sort of how she taught us Latin. And what I found fascinating was how metaphorical a lot of those connotations were. You know, she'd teach us about like the word sanguine, for example, and how it comes from the Latin word for blood. And the word sanguine in English, you know, means you're you're cheerful in outlook or you're right. Um, or like consanguination, right? You know, so she'd she'd take one Latin word and she'd show us kind of all of its descendants. And I love that idea that there were these stories and that people basically were thinking in metaphors all along because a lot of times, you know, like the example in the book, the inner bark of trees moving to books, it's sort of literal in that they peeled off the paper for trees. And there's a story there about how books came into being. But there's also sort of this metaphorical layer about peeling back all the layers of a word or a story. And then when you think about a library as being lots and lots of layers of story, there's such a richness there. So yeah, it's it was a place where I got to to nerd out a little bit and sort of express my love of words and particularly the stories that they just have embedded inside them. Well, there's this beautiful effect of a book about limiting truth and limiting stories and limiting books and limiting language and access at the same time being written in such a lush way that helped you to know that these things can actually never be taken away, that they are there inside of us, right? Those things that Bird's father could no longer access computers. They're just in him. You can't take that knowledge away. Yeah. And and they get passed on, too. I mean, a lot of times I think we we sort of discount the, the family stories that we hear, the stories that just someone will tell you, but they stick with you. And that kind of, I mean, I guess that's the modern equivalent of the oral tradition, right? Um, when people would pass down the stories or their family heritage or their folktales, that's how they would get passed on. And they would morph a little bit, but they were always alive, even if they weren't written down. And there's a lot of folk tales and fairy tales in the book. And part of that is because, again, I was thinking about how those stories get passed down in times when they can't be written down for whatever reason. Uh, there's a mention of a, a Russian poet, Anna Akhmatova, 
who... <sighs> this was haunting. I didn't know her. I didn't know her either until partway through the book, and she kind of appeared, and she clicked all these pieces of the book together. But she was writing the, during the time of Stalin and the terror, and she wasn't allowed to write her poetry because she was considered an enemy of the state. And so what she did was she would work on her poems at night, and then in the morning... She would kind of remember everything that she'd written and she'd just burn the paper. And then when it came to be nightfall again, she'd write down what she did before and she'd go on. And the way that she published her work was that she would teach those poems to friends and let them kind of be the holders of those poems. And, you know, there's a lot more to her story, but I was really struck by that idea of this it's a little it's a little philosophical. It's sort of like, you know, the, if a tree falls in the forest, you know, no one hears it. If you write this poem, but it's not written down anywhere. How does it continue to live? And one of the ways I think that happens is that people remember it, right? Um, and so if people remember a work in a way, it's still alive, even if it's not set down in paper. There's still a continuity to that to that language. Yeah, I thought that was beautiful. And I had never heard of her. I think every writer has wanted to set fire to their work, feeling like it's no good. But the notion that <laughs> every day you had to destroy it, every day you had to commit it to memory, every day you had to tell people, and it probably wouldn't all live, but enough of it would, that even a poem that didn't exist could still exist. I, I found that story hauntingly beautiful and really tied together so much of what you were doing here. I know that our time is limited and you do tons of interviews uh, and you're always asked the same questions again. So I always try to end with just just a few little glimpses into the human behind the author, behind the book. Oh, yay. I love this. My favorite thing about any interview is finding <laughs> out, you know, like, oh, these are real people that we're talking to. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll just start with a few multiple choice. These are just pick one. Uh, coffee or tea? Tea. Mountains or beach? Beach. Dogs or cats? Cats. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. And are you a risk taker or are you the person who always knows where the Band-Aids are? I definitely know where the Band-Aids are, and I have several kinds. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, now, if you fill in the blanks, um, if I wasn't working as a writer, I would be a... I would probably be a miniaturist. What is a miniaturist? I was going to say, I, I see follow-up questions coming. <laughs> For a while, I I worked as a, a scale miniaturist. Um, so I would make a very small one-inch-to-the-foot scale miniatures for dollhouse collectors. So that means that if uh, you're making, let's say, a cake, and the cake would ordinarily be 12 inches across, it's one inch across. And so food was my specialty, and that was my little sideline for a while. That was how I made extra spending money. I, I grew up with a dollhouse, and I loved it. And and uh, I don't know why, but I have the miniatures gene. I'm fascinated by small things. And so even now, if I if I have spare time, I tinker with miniatures. That is most excellent. I love knowing that. And so that kind of feeds into my next question, which is something you might have just answered it. But what is something quirky that folks don't know about you? Likes or loves or pet peeves. That's one of the big ones, although people are starting to know because um, my my publicist made me go on Instagram, but she didn't tell me what I needed to put on. So I decided I would just put pictures of my miniatures and whatever I was working on. And so... <laughs> Uh, That's probably exactly what she meant. Uh, what I love is I get more people talking to me about the miniatures than they do about my books. And in fact, a couple people followed me for the miniatures and then they were like, I didn't know you wrote books. Well, I'm going to go get your books. Oh, my Which gosh. Which I, I kind of love. But I, I love when I follow somebody on social media and I learn something about them that isn't their public persona because there is, again, that sense that, oh, you're a human being. I did not know. Ari Shapiro, that you also were a cabaret singer, but I kind of love this. <laughs> there's there's a WBUR radio anchor 
And and I just learned because he was on like America's Got Talent. I think he he's a, a whip cracker. He grew up in the circus. And so he has Simon Cowell hold. Look it up on YouTube afterwards. I'm going to. He has to. Simon Cowell hold like a stick in between his knees. And then he cracks the whip and he snaps the stick and he doesn't hit Simon Cowell. And I, I just love this idea that, you know, humans are, I think, infinitely weird and wonderful and knowing things about each other like this makes us seem more real. Um, so the miniatures is is one big thing. I guess another thing is that I snack a lot while I'm writing, especially. So I have a drawer in, I guess it's technically a cabinet in my desk where I just keep candy that I can eat while I'm working. What's, what's a, if I were to go in your house, which I probably won't, but go in that drawer, which if you're inviting me, I will. Um, what's in there? What would be? Oh, I, sh- I share. Um, well, I can tell you what's in there right now. I have a big bag of um, like strawberry sour belts and I have a bag of these vegan gummy bears, which I'm not a vegan, but um, I really like the texture of these ones. And I used to have um, something chocolate in there. I don't remember, but I finished that one. So there's there's always at least a couple kinds of candy in there because I feel like um, it's it's good for your brain. Right. If you're not hiding candy in your desk, are you really writing? That's what I was going to say. Are you, what kind of life are you living? And what are the drawers in your desk for? You only need to keep so many pencils and pens. Oh, my gosh. Um, Hey, what's a favorite movie? A favorite movie. It doesn't have to be the favorite movie. Well, I will say this just because my son and I were quoting it at lunch. Um, I love the Muppet movie. Uh, probably not the movie that you expected me to say. And I have many other more serious choices. But I I genuinely love the Muppet movie. Um. I don't remember why it came up, but one of us made a reference, as we so often do. It's just part of the family parlance. I never hear Kermit the Frog sing the Rainbow Connection without crying a little. It's one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. And it, and the frog singing it. It, it legitimately is. I, I just went to visit my mother and... Um, she she's been cleaning out her condo and I, I she pulled out all these old records so I took them home like vinyl records and one of them is the Muppet movie soundtrack so I was just listening to it yesterday it's a little warped so there's a couple skips in it but I was struck again by how beautiful and kind of profound a song that is and how witty all the songs are so I'm I'm a diehard Muppets fan and I will defend them as one of the the pinnacles of our culture I, yeah, I could. We could actually go back to the top of this interview and just talk about Miss Piggy and and my like hesitancy as a young person to come to feminism because of the way Miss Piggy was treated by all the Muppets, and that when I fully embraced Miss Piggy is when I came into my own as a feminist and as a woman. I've yes. got all kinds of theories about this. I feel like there's a lot to say about this, and I feel like the Muppets are really underappreciated and underused as a, a form of. Um, I guess social commentary. There's a political theorist, Dahlia Lithwick, who talks about her theory about chaos Muppets and order Muppets. She, she theorizes that basically all Muppets and by extension, all people can be split into chaos Muppets and order Muppets. So order Muppets are Kermit, Kermit. trying to keep things straight. Scooter, right? Sam the Eagle. Chaos Muppets are Cookie Animal. Monster. Animal, right? Um, Gonzo. Gonzo, exactly. And the, and the sense that you can kind of make a broad distinction between the order of Muppets who are trying to keep things straight and then the chaos Muppets who are really just trying to blow things up. Lou Zealand, for example, with his boomerang fish. Uh, Crazy Harry, <laughs> who's blowing stuff up. So this is the, the, here. This is a quirky thing about me that I, I I spend a fair amount of time thinking about these things to the extent where in an interview I, I referred offhand to a chaos Muppet 
And then I had to backtrack and explain to the audience and interviewer what a chaos Muppet was. And I was like, I, I'm sorry. I have led you far, far, far down the garden path. I love everything about this. And as a Kermit myself, I <laughs> feel like I've spent a lifetime as an orderly Muppet longing to be and know chaos Muppets. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That might even be why I'm a writer. Celeste. This is amazing to this me. This is cracking things open. Oh, it's, my gosh. It's kind of a revolutionary theory, and it, it does explain a lot. I mean, even if you go to Sesame Street and their Muppets, you look at Bert and Ernie, for example, right? And the chaos and the order and which one is kind of trying to keep it together. And, but they need each other. You can't have just one without the other. They tend to come in pairs. This is amazing. Oh, my, go <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, my gosh glad to have introduced this, the, the, the Muppet, the grand unified Muppet theory into your life. I wish I could take credit for it, but I just, I'm just evangelical about it. I, I am now too. And I did, I think I was before, but now you've introduced me to the whole scholarly work. I'll be doing that right after this. Last two questions, I promise. <laughs> Maybe. Um, what's your favorite ice cream? It honestly depends on the season. Um, I mean, like in the summer, I really love like a good mint chocolate chip, preferably a green one. Um, in other seasons, uh, you really can't go wrong with cookies and cream. But I won't say no to pretty much any kind of ice cream. So so Mitchell's, which I don't know if Mitchell's yes. have been here when you lived here. Okay, well, Mitchell's I in know the Mitchell's. springtime, roundabout shamrock shake time, they combine cookies and cream and mint and they put Ooh. them together and they make a cookie monster sundae just to bring it all full around here. And oh, it's a mint cookie that. monster sundae and it's just... Come back and visit, and um, I will. I'm going to have to come back at me. that time. I've I've never been at that time, but I love Mitchell's. Every time I'm there, I'm usually there in the summer, and so I will get a big thing of their raspberry sorbet, which is one of the best raspberry sorbets I have ever had. Amen. I will have to make an exception. Uh, come back around St. Patrick's Day and get the Cookie Monster. It sounds delicious. If you're not here at that time, I do know I've heard of someone maybe who buys it to have um, in a sort of a Four Seasons kind of. Situation. I'm not going to out that person. That'd be weird. I'm just saying it is available in some homes. I was going to say, I, I also feel like it could be the kind of thing where if you go in, it's like if you go to In-N-Out Burger and you know how to order off the secret the menu, secret maybe menu. if you go into Mitchell's and you kind of order off the secret menu, maybe they would do that. So I am, um, you know, COVID willing, I am going to be in Cleveland this fall to do a book event. And uh, I think I'm going to have to make a stop at Mitchell's and I'll just say, is there any possible way that you could make me a is it it's called the cookie monster the cookie monster sunday yeah the mint cookie monster sunday mint cookie monster mm -hmm. sunday all right this is very useful information all right uh, you heard it here folks all right and the last one if we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love what would we see you doing i probably honestly i would be on the couch with a cup of tea nearby snuggled up in a big fuzzy blanket and reading a book <laughs> It's so boring, but it's really true. You are just going to be an orderly Muppet, and that's perfect. I, I am it. orderly, and I will be, I have a very fuzzy blanket that my husband says it's green and it's furry, and he calls it my Muppet blanket. So it's that's how I transform into, into my Muppet <laughs> self. <laughs> I love everything about that. Well, Celeste Ng, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Um, I'm thinking a lot about how we right the wrongs of the past, and we do that with truth, and we do that with story and with passing down those things to our children so they're not stuck with the burdens of what we didn't finish and fix. I'm just so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. This was such a fun conversation and I really appreciate it. 
Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrew. And audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but, you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, (laughs) maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Green. (laughs) There's your first challenge of the week. (laughs) Avoid elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Guilty Greenie.